you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 4 this morning. While you turn there, I, I will uh, acknowledge probably some of you would love for me to tell you about the uh, details of Sally Ann Doyle's uh, coming arrangements. We don't have those yet. I do want to make that known to you. And as soon as we get that information, I'll be uh, really excited to pass that along to you. She was a dear and precious saint in our church, um, and I'm looking forward to being able to uh, to pass those uh, details along. In Mark chapter 4, we've covered a, actually a lot of parables up to this point. Jesus was basically teaching about the, the principles and the power of the kingdom of God, which is coming. And then, and then you transition at this point, at the end of chapter 4, and we find three examples of how the power of Jesus was manifest in real-life situations. And again, one of the very key themes of Mark's gospel is who is Jesus? And how you answer that question determines what anchors you in this life and also in the life to come. For Jesus, it's been a long day of teaching when we come to verse 35. Let's pick up there. Remember that this is God's word. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the, in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. O Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, you make a profound promise that you will send forth your word, and that that word will not ever return void. And so we ask that you would be faithful to that promise today, that as we've read your word, as we move to hear it preached, that you would send it forth and accomplish the purposes for which you send it. And would you, in your grace and kindness, use a sinful crooked stick like me uh, to simply point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. Show us the Lord, we pray. Amen. For men who'd been raised on the, the Sea of Galilee, this was something of the worst-case scenario for them. It was the, the kind of thing that James and John's father, Zebedee, would have warned them about when they were young. If you're ever on the water and, and, and you begin to see clouds moving in, you start feeling the wind whipping, get off the water as quickly as possible. And yet, over the course of years, having lived there and fished there, they've become very accustomed to things, almost comfortable. And so when this storm comes up, it is completely unexpected. In fact, they grew up on the water knowing that, that fishing was good in the evening, but it was also one of the safest and calmest times of night. And so when Peter and Andrew and James and John, this is, this is something that has haunted them for most of their lives, but for many times it's actually never happened. So many times that they are at peace 
The rest of the disciples are looking to these fishermen, the guys who have experience. You have to remember that in the ancient world, no one went to the local YMCA and had swimming lessons when they were kids. To them, the the sea is the great abyss under which you may sink. It's It's the most ominous threat which makes it a perfect place to to apply it to your own ominous threats, your own biggest fears, the places where you feel out of control and threatened. What are those places for you? A terminal disease or financial scare, the loss of loved ones or or the sense that you are alone. What if you were to never find a spouse? Whatever that fear is, When the storms of life come, where do you focus your attention? In other words, where are your eyes fixed in the middle of the storm? I think most of us do exactly what the disciples did. We look at the storm, and then we look at ourselves, rather than turning to to look at Christ. Incidentally, that's actually the temptation that you face any time you read this particular passage. Because you've heard this passage read, and you've heard it preached probably before. And it's always applied to something like this. Well, Jesus has power to calm the storms of nature. He can surely calm the storms in your life too. And that's true, isn't it? That's true. But it still leaves you staring at yourself. Still leaves you staring at your own personal storms. And so to read this text from such a man-centered perspective puts Jesus in the boat with you in the midst of your storms. You remember that Mark wrote everything that Peter told him to write. Peter was there. And I suspect that Peter told this story and preached a sermon somewhat something like the one I'm preaching today. In fact, the very thing that Peter stresses is the thing which is often missed. Peter says, we thought we were taking Jesus with us in our boat. But in fact, he took us with him in his water, on his earth, under his sovereign power. You see, it's not so much what Jesus can do, but who he is. Jesus is the Lord of the storm. Peter would say, well, he's the Lord who created the storm. He's the Lord who takes you into the storm. He's the Lord who brings peace in the storm. He's the Lord who summons you to believe him in the midst of the storm. The passage says you can rest in the Lord of creation. We have three points this morning to our text. The questions within the storm, the test within the storm, and then finally the power within the storm. Let's start with the questions in the storm. If Peter is Mark's source for this account, you can tell just how vivid this memory was in Peter's mind. I mentioned this back in chapter 3 when we looked at what other people were saying about Jesus, like his family is saying he's a lunatic. Religious leaders are saying, well, no, he's a liar. And then I mentioned at that point that modern people do something that ancient people would never have found suitable. They have this weird category, no, Jesus wasn't a lunatic. He's not a liar. He was a good moral teacher of love and peace. He's not God. And the presumption flows from this kind of idea that Jesus' followers just simply wrote down fiction about him after his death, which is why you can't trust these gospels. But if you remember, 
I use this particular point as evidence to you that this is not fiction. Because ancient writers do nothing if they write fiction. They never include this kind of detail. Details that do nothing to advance the story. If you ever took senior English and your English teacher gave you the book Beowulf to read. Dates from about 700 A.D. When Beowulf goes to, to fight Grendel, the writer doesn't tell us anything about the sort of bed that he laid in before he went to fight. Doesn't tell us anything about what his sandals looked like or what the toga was that he was wearing when he went in. And yet there's so many details in this account. Details that don't actually advance the story. They're simply there to tell us that Peter saw it up close. Look at verse 36. They took Jesus just as he was. He didn't change his clothes. He didn't eat dinner. He didn't wash his face. He was tired. And they took him just like that. Verse 36. Other boats were with him. How many times have you read this story? And have you ever even noticed that little detail? Jesus is asleep when the storm comes. Where is he in the boat? Verse 38, he's in the stern on a cushion. Are you sure about that, Peter? You sure he wasn't in the bow? Sleeping on a blanket? No. Why does any of this matter? Well, it doesn't matter to advance the story. It matters to instill confidence. Not only that the events truly happened... But since they happened, they are in the sovereign hand of a God. So every single detail that Peter wants to tell us about through the pen of Mark is relevant to speak to the most serious questions that you would ask when you encounter storms like this in your own life. Questions like, how did I get here? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side and that detail which seems like it's really nothing more than the introduction to the story would later be remembered by Peter as proof that he wasn't actually in the storm by accident Sinclair Ferguson says sometimes we find ourselves in difficulties because of our own sin and foolishness but there are times when the Lord himself will lead us into difficulties in other words, some of the storms that you face in this life are simply because the Lord brought you to them on purpose. That almost seems counter to your expectations, doesn't it? Like when you became a Christian, didn't you imagine that life would be somewhat free of troubles? I'm going to overflow with peace and joy all the time. In fact, the biggest problem I'm going to have is trying to figure out how to jump from cloud to cloud to cloud. Peter says, no, actually, Jesus didn't take away our trials. He didn't take away our temptations. He didn't make life a smooth ride in a boat on calm waters. In fact, sometimes he led us right into the storm. Some of you might hear that and say, that's terrifying. But there is comfort in this. If the Lord Jesus brought you to the, Lord, to the storm, then not only is your life not made up of a bunch of cosmic accidents, more than that, there's a purpose. 
And if you do not understand the purpose in that moment, at least there's some comfort in the fact that there really is a purpose. That the Lord who brought you to this place intends to do something in this place. When you encounter storms in your own life, you wrestle with questions. How did I get here? But also, where am I going? Verse 35. Let us go across to the other side. I suspect it was months or years later when Peter realized just how crucial that little detail was. Jesus took me into the storm with the intention of getting to the other side. Not that getting to the other side was in fact the goal. But in every storm, there really is always the other side. For most of us, you come to a place in your life where you feel like you're in the midst of the storm and it seems to you in that moment, I'm pretty sure I'm here in the storm just so I can stay in the storm. And for sure, you may not choose what the other shore looks like. You may not choose what the outcome would look like. You might not draw it out in exactly the way that the Lord would, but live or die, suffer or find ease, there really is another side. In fact, every Christian who has ever died for the cause of Christ died and lived in this comfort. More than that, every believer who's ever been through a storm lives with that comfort too. Every Christian who's ever lost or grieved the death of a spouse or a loved one has found there really is another side. Every Christian who's faced a a job loss or a health scare or a financial setback has found there's another side. But why do you struggle to believe that while you're in the middle of it? In fact, when you come to the other side, how you process things on the other side says something about what you learned or didn't learn in the midst of the trial. Do you allow yourself to grow bitter at your circumstances? Do you harbor resentment? Do you hate the people who you think caused you the pain in the middle of that storm? Or do you forgive those who've wronged you? And trust the Lord, though you do not understand what he's doing in the storm, do you learn from the storm? When you encounter storms like this in your own life, we wrestle with questions. How did I get here? Where am I going? But also perhaps, does Jesus even care? The windstorm arose, the waves are crashing in the boat. In fact, the text gives us a sense the boat is is filling with water. Verse 38, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? When pastor said, this is the cruelest question they could have asked because the very reason he was in the boat, indeed in the world, The reason that he was going to die on the cross for them was precisely because he cared for them. And yet, if you should criticize them for that question, when you stand in the middle of storms, have you ever doubted the Lord's care? Fall of 2003, I just moved to seminary. I had a a lengthy illness in that first year of seminary where I said out loud to a friend of mine, I think the Lord is against me. 
2012 to 2018. My prayer journal is full of these questions. Why did you bring me here? Why am I alone? Have you forgotten me? Are you going to leave me here forever? Do you care? I mention that not so that this can become some pastoral confession booth, but because I should have known better. In fact, every one of us should know better. You truly have no reason to doubt the Lord's care for you. The very reason he came into the world is because he cares. The reason that he would lay down his life to pay for the sins that you and I have committed, which really do deserve eternal punishment, is because he cares. And so in fearful moments, when circumstances overwhelm you physically or emotionally or spiritually, when you are scared, you say things that you might later regret. I would draw your attention to this. If there is a single sliver of goodness in their question, it is this. As small as it is, there is a measure of faith in their question. Really? Yeah, four of these men in this boat are experienced sailors. And yet when the storm overwhelms them and they are terrified, they turn to a carpenter who's asleep in the front of the boat. They direct their cry to him. One commentator says their faith was far from perfect, but even little faith is faith. And that little faith holds out hope for purification and for growth. You can rest in the Lord of creation. These are the questions within the storm. Now let's look at the test within the storm. I mentioned earlier to you that verse 35 has a comfort that Jesus brought them into the storm By simply saying, let us go across to the other side. It was his word. It was his command. Jesus led them into this storm on purpose. What is the purpose for leading us into storms? I am sure when you're personally in the middle of a storm, it's helpful to remember that there's purpose. But it's hard to decipher what that purpose is when your boat is filling with water, when the winds are are pounding against you, which is why it's helpful for us to look at the disciples and talk about God's purposes on this side of whatever storm the Lord might take you into. The, the, The purpose of the storm was to test their faith. And you might say, that's it? That's all it is? Just a test of faith. And then why does it have to be so severe? And if you would say that when you would read the pages of Scripture, you will certainly ask that when the Lord is testing you. In fact, it's the nature of fallen men and women to read everything through the lens of, of, of me. This is my boat. This is my water. These are my storms. And in fact, we read the Bible that way too. We read our lives through that man-centered lens. But what does the text say? They, verse 36, they took him with them in the boat. I suspect that's the way Peter was telling it. You put Jesus in your boat with you, in your storms, and then you find out that he took you there to test you? Well, you might become undone with bitterness. 
That's why Peter says Jesus wasn't with us in our boat. We were with him in his water, on his earth, under his sovereign power. And we, his disciples, were tested for his purposes. Isn't that reason enough for the Lord of creation who knows your inmost frame, who knows precisely how he crafted you, who knows where you're weak, who knows where you need growth, who knows where humility would aid your faith. Manufacturers test their products so they can prove that it will stand against the pressures of life. Wouldn't the Lord who crafted you, who knows you, who made you, who actually gave you the faith in the first place, wouldn't he test that faith that he gave you to see if it stands within the pressures of life, to help you look and grow in him, to trust him, to wait upon him, to believe that he cares even when you can't see it. Sometimes we think that we are strong in faith when things are going well. But it is because the Lord tests us that God uses those tests to reveal that perhaps our faith was not actually in Him, but in the fact that things were going so well. And it's that question of verse 38 that brings this whole thing home to roost. Do you care? I had an eighth grade math teacher who I was sure gave tests in order to crush and embarrass us and mainly to crush and embarrass me. Any teacher in the room knows that that is not what was going on, but it felt that way to me. Sometimes we wrongly think that the Lord's tests are like that, that they are there to crush and embarrass you. In fact, in the Bible, the tests are not like that at all. They're not meant to crush or embarrass or cause failure or bring you to despair. They're actually made to reveal your heart and to shape you for your own good. What did the the, the test of Mark chapter 4 reveal? Well, Peter would say, we didn't even trust the Lord's words. He said, let us go across to the other side. His word, that should have been enough. That no matter what storms we encounter, we were going to come to the other side. One pastor rightly said, they allowed the voice of the storm to silence the voice of the Lord. You ever do that? Does the howling wind of the storm that strikes against you make you feel separated from Jesus' word, make you separate, feel separated from his utter and complete devotion to you? When trials come your way that you would not plan and would not choose, do you ever doubt his love? Would you stop here at a moment and and turn and stare at the cross so that even when your faith is tested, is the message of the cross not enough certainty of his love and faithfulness to you? Certainly that should speak louder than every storm. Do you see what's happening? Jesus, who trusts his Father in heaven, can sleep through the storms because his faith perfectly rests in the God who cares for him. If you are in Christ by faith, you can rest in the front of the boat on a cushion like Jesus did. 
the exact same certainty. Because the Lord cares for you so much that he will give you precisely the storm that it takes and precisely the measure and precisely the amount of time to teach you to trust him. That's why James can say in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 3 would say, everything I've suffered... I've suffered so that I would gain Christ and become like Him in suffering. That's why a much older Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. You can rest in the Lord of creation. The questions within the storm, the test within the storm, which is to grow your faith. And then finally, the power within the storm. To the disciples in the moment, it looked like all the power of the storm was in the hands of the storm. As they stare at the storm, as they stare at themselves and try to figure out how to solve the problems and find themselves utterly and completely inept and sinking. The Bible says, no, the real power was in Jesus. But not like you thought. It was in Jesus' capacity to use every power under heaven to transform his disciples. As if you are in the boat with them, I want you to turn now and look at Jesus. Verse 39. Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Not only does Jesus stand up, friends, and literally muzzle the storm as if he is muzzling a rabid dog, then he turns and he rebukes his disciples for what really is the heart of the issue. You and I have so rarely the eyes to see that it was the Lord not only who brought us into the storm, but it's the Lord who actually is the source of all the power in the storm. Do you understand creation? Do you understand the way things work, even in a fallen world, that the storm on this tiny little lake in Galilee has no power except power which has been granted to it from the Lord of creation. That the storms that you feel will ravage your life have no power at all except power on loan from the Lord of creation. On the heels of the greatest test in his life, having lost so many of his loved ones, Job, who has complained and trusted and listened to his friends, hears the Lord out of a whirlwind. In Job chapter 38, if you have not read that chapter in a long time, you should go back and read it. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. 
on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth in the, from the womb when I said, thus far you shall come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. That's the Lord. In the midst of the storms of your own life, it is shockingly easy to take your good theology of a sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving, infinite God and put that theology up on a shelf. Because in the storm, you think that all the power within the storm is found from the storm itself. Sure, God is sovereign over this. He's powerful. But does He care? Is He good? Did you notice in the text that they are initially scared by the storm, but they are suddenly terrified when they encounter the glory of Christ. Look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Brothers and sisters, if you are looking for the power and the presence of Christ in the storms of your own life, you may not see it in the moment But over time, every true follower of Christ comes to see that the real power in the storms of life is not found in the storms itself. It's not even found in what Jesus can do for you in the midst of those storms. The real power from the storm comes in the realization of who Jesus is. If you are looking For the power and the presence of God in your life. Turn and look at Christ. Don't look at the storm. Don't look at yourself. Peter would say, it wasn't until the storm that we saw Jesus with fresh eyes. We saw Jesus for who he is. An infinite God who was full of power and love. In other words, what we learned was that his care for us was not incompatible with storms at all. How could Peter say that so confidently? Because he watched as Jesus walked directly into the real storm, the storm of the cross, where he brought himself under the real waves under the real wrath of God and allowed himself to sink. What are you facing? Which cannot be proven as a mark of God's love and tenderness by the fact that Christ went to the cross. Sinclair Ferguson points out that every test and trial, every storm is another opportunity for you to see the glory of Jesus Christ and discover his power in your own life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you, having sent forth your word, would lay seeds in our hearts and water them and fertilize them and grow those seeds so that we might know Christ more fully, that we might see his glory And constantly look to him and trust, even when storms come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.